Wow. <laughs> David was worried about following Chuck Colson. <laughs> I'm following three heroes, actually. Uh, I've never met Donovan except for today. And man, thank you for the work that you have done for our country. And the, the sort of man that it takes to be that way. And uh, I've learned so much from uh, David Noggle's books on worldview, and in fact, the talk that I'm about to give is, is quite intimidating because David's book on loves is the best book on virtue that I've seen. So it's a terrific book, and he alluded to some of that. I'm going to kind of pick up where he left off. And of course, uh, Chuck Colson, who has, in my estimation, done more than anything else to confront the church with the sorts of questions culturally that they need to be asking. And so it's an honor to be considered part of this. I am uh, picking up here kind of where David left off, and that is this topic of if we know the right thing, can we actually do the right thing? And that's the next stage of this, is yes, okay, so moral truth exists, and this can be demonstrated philosophically, it can be demonstrated even, I think, pragmatically, and on on a number of levels, but if we know it, can we actually do it? And this is an important question for me, both as a a man and trying to wrestle with being the type of man uh, that that we see uh, with with, with guys like Donovan, and, and also because I have three little girls, and I'm trying to help them deal with this too. I am the dad of three little girls. That's my life. Oh, yeah. Clap. <laughs> really clap for my wife. I mean, that's a tough job. You know, if you have, you have little boys, you just have little boys to worry about. If you have little girls, you have all the little boys in the world to worry about. And, 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 and that's my life, you know. And, and, and I love my little girls, even though they've turned my entire house into pink. Um, I, I tried to fight it. I lost um, everything in my house is pink and princess. Um, I mean, you know. I woke up the other morning and I had princess boxers on. I have no idea how it happened. It was just awkward. It was, it was just incredible. Um, but, but, but you know, that, that question is if, if, we can, if we know the right thing, can we do it? I, I take my daughters on, on dates. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Usually we go to Starbucks because they get a donut. I get coffee. Everybody wins. But um, I, I took my uh, three-year-old to, with me and I had to run some errands. I was about to hop on a trip just a couple, a couple months ago and I, I took her with me and we actually had to go to the, to the dry cleaners. I know it wasn't very exciting, but the lady was so very nice. And so when I paid her and she saw my little three-year-old girl, she, 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 she took a dollar bill and gave it back to her. And this was magnificent for her, although she had no idea what a dollar was. She kept calling it, she gave me a ticket. She gave me a ticket. I don't, I don't know where she got that, but that was her idea. And so we got home, and Anna is so excited. She runs into the house, and she says, Mommy, the lady gave me a ticket, and she's holding up the dollar bill, and my five-year-old is there, and she knows what a dollar bill is. Somehow she learned this. And it just really bothered her that her sister got a dollar bill, and she did not. And it really upset her. And, and, and she wasn't being kind and loving to her sister. And so we took Abigail off to the side and said, listen, Abigail, you need to be happy for your sister. This was a good thing that happened to her. And you love her. And you need to be happy that good things happened to her. And sometimes good things happen to you. And she, she looked at me and she said, Daddy, I want to be happy for Anna. But I just can't. You ever feel like, I mean, that's the story, isn't it? We know what's right, but then what is the transition between knowing what's right and how do we do it? And as Chuck described this morning, we know uh, that, that things have gone wrong in our culture. We know with this economic collapse, we know looking around that things have gone wrong in our culture. So how do we then do the right thing? And there are some bad strategies that we're used to, uh, to seeing here. 
There we go. And the bad strategies that we're used to seeing here in our culture is that our culture tries to solve this problem by adding things to our lives. And this, these, these don't really work. But let me talk about a few things that our culture tries to add. First of all, in order to make us virtuous, let's add rules. Right? And so we've heard this. The economic collapse happened. There weren't enough regulations. Let's add a whole lot more regulations. That'll make us behave. Now, more rules. The problem with this is more rules don't make us behave. Do they? I mean, I grew up in an environment like this, as, as in, a, in a Christian environment where we were very concerned about li- looking a particular way and doing a particular thing, and so they added lots of rules. I mean, we took all of the rules in the Bible and then added a couple hundred just to be safe. And this is, you know, this is what it meant to be a good Christian. And you know what it made us? It didn't make us rule abiders. It actually made us better at breaking the rules. And of course, that misses something else, and that's this, is that you can actually obey the rules, you can actually obey the rules and still not do the right thing if the rules themselves are wrong. We can add incentives. And that is, if rules are there to protect us, and by the way, the third problem with this, and I meant to bring this up, is that rules might protect us from other people, and of course, that's what we're hearing, is that we need to be protected from those big bad lenders and things like that. Well, listen, yeah, they were immoral, but so were we. Maybe the rules will protect us from them. Who's going to protect us from us? When it comes to incentives, the idea is not to protect us, it's to buy us. The problem is that this doesn't make us uh, virtuous, it just makes us junkies. Right? And so instead of living because of what's right, instead of living for a cause that's bigger than ourselves, like we just heard in this testimony, then we live for incentives. And of course, we're in deep, a deep mess right now because in our culture, all the incentives are actually to do the wrong thing. There are no incentives to delay gratification. There are only incentives to live for the now. And that doesn't make us virtuous either. A third thing that often we add is education. Now this is the great kind of secularist solution to this. Is people aren't, aren't, aren't being good. We, well, the problem is that they don't have enough education. D.L. Moody had this great line. He said, if you take someone who steals railroad ties and you give them an education, all you've done is teach them to steal the entire railroad. Education, if it only deals with technical knowledge and never deals with virtuous training, training in virtue, then it will not make us a better person. And this is exactly what we heard in the video uh, from those talking about colleges and, and, and universities, that the training in virtue actually is absent. In fact, I think this has created an entire new sociological study. You may have heard about this. A guy named John Mayer wrote a song called Why Georgia Why? And in it, he talks about going through a quarter-life crisis. Well, two master's students in sociology heard this song and thought, that's what we feel. And so they started this website called thequarterlifecrisis.com. Now, you may not know about this website, but the basic idea is that it's an online, online excuse me, support group for 25, uh, 20s and 30-year-olds, uh, you know, and hundreds, 100,000 people have joined this. And the idea is, why wait for a midlife crisis when you can have one at 25? You know, just kind of get on with it, right? But what you're hearing from all of these people is this. We've got a great education. We've got a great degree. I've got a great job. I make a lot of money. I own a car. I have a hot girlfriend. I live downtown Chicago. I can walk to seven Starbucks in five minutes and I'm miserable. Because something was missing as a part of their education. It told them what to do. It told them how to make money. It didn't tell them why. 
In fact, Steve Garber in his excellent book, The Fabric of Faithfulness, quotes a Duke University student by saying this. We've got no philosophy of what it is that we want by the time somebody graduates. The so-called curriculum is a set of hoops that somebody says students ought to jump through before graduation. No one seems to have asked, listen to this question, how do people become good people? And this is why education by itself is not enough either. And then finally, if you go to the bookstore, if there are any bookstores left... The other idea is, how do you become a good person? Look inside. Look deep within. Look deep within. Chuck talked about this earlier. The idea is, let conscience be your God. But if we do not have a well-formed conscience, it's like what the video said, what if we're a jerk? We can look inside and actually be led astray because the problem isn't looking inside. The problem is, is that you don't know where you are. See if this makes sense. You do not know where you are unless there is a fixed reference point for you to refer to. Does that make sense? I mean, it's like the reason a compass helps you get out of the wilderness is not because it points at you. (laughs) Right? I I mean, imagine if you got dropped into, if you got dropped into the wilderness of Dallas which is downtown, um, and, and you got dropped in, and, and you're trying to find your way out, and, and you had a big magnet in, a, in your backpack, so that everywhere you looked, it pointed at you. You would be the North Pole. If you're the North Pole, you're lost. Is that fair enough? It, the reason a compass helps you is it because it points to something outside of you. And if all we do is look inside, and there's nothing upon which to find our bearings, we're going to be lost. And you know, the short-sightedness of all of these additions, add rules, add education, add self-actualization, add incentives, the short-sightedness of all of this becomes obvious when you actually get to see lives of virtue. When you actually get to hear from people who live lives of virtue. And we've heard from some of those already this morning. But I want to bring some vignettes out of history. Now, Eric did not pay me to do this, but I've got to tell you, I'm a big fan of Bonhoeffer also. In fact, I'm a big fan of Amazing Grace and what he did with the life of Wilberforce. Eric is a terrific writer, and you should absolutely read these books. In each of these biographies of Wilberforce and of of, of Bonhoeffer, in one sentence, he gives us a vignette, a kind of encapsulation of their entire lives. And Bonhoeffer comes at the very beginning of the book. The book actually begins telling the story of Bonhoeffer's memorial service. And Bonhoeffer's memorial service was astounding for two reasons. Number one is, Carl and Paula Bonhoeffer, Dietrich's parents, were not actually certain, according to the book, that that he he was dead. The, the, the lines of communication had been decimated. There were rumors going around that Dietrich actually had lived. Of course, he, didn't even, he wasn't even uh, 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 executed until a few days before the fall of the Third Reich anyway. Uh, and, and actually, it was the British who found this out. The Bishop of London, who had worked uh, closely with Dietrich to try to uh, create uh, uh, British support for the German resistance, decided to hold a memorial service for Dietrich Bonhoeffer that would be broadcast across the BBC and across German lines. And news of that broadcast of Dietrich's funeral was how Paul and Paula found found out about their son. It was astounding for another reason, though. And that was because Winston Churchill, in leading the British against the Germans, painted all, all Germans as evil Nazis. And he did that to booster morale and so on, according to the book. And so here was the Bishop of London, a Brit, holding a memorial service for a German. And here's how Eric, in his wonderful way with words, describes this. 
as the couple, Bonhoeffer's parents, took in the hard news that the good man who was their son was now dead, so too many English took in the hard news that the dead man who was a German was good. Thus did the world again begin to reconcile itself to itself. His statement on Wilberforce comes at the end of the book. Wilberforce fought his battle for 40 years in British Parliament, and then he went on to fight other causes. And as, a, as, as an elderly man, there was questions about the transition of the throne and that sort of thing that, that Eric describes very well. And, 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 you know, what's interesting, when Wilberforce started his campaign to end slavery, that wasn't his only goal. In fact, he said that God had called him to two great ends, the abolition of the slave trade. And anybody know what the other one is? The reformation of... Manners. Now, he wasn't saying the reformation of manners like he wants people to say, excuse me, thank you, bless you, and open the door for ladies. I mean, what, what he's talking about here is in London, it was a horrible place. There are paintings. I mean, you can get the visual picture or the word picture from Charles Dickens and how he describes that time. But if you, there's actual paintings that describe what London and the British culture was like, and they're pornographic. And it wasn't, it's not because they're sensationalist. It's just because it was a horrible, horrible, horrible place to live. Does anyone know the era that, that, that British, uh, the British Empire entered after the life of Wilberforce? The Victorian era. The heyday of British civilization. On a number of levels. Eric describes the scene in the book where near the end of Wilberforce's life, he goes to visit the Duchess of York, who has a six-year-old little girl. And unbeknownst to anyone, this is the next queen. Her name is Victoria. She's six years old. And in Wilberforce's very human way of doing things, he gets down on his hands and knees and plays with this little girl. And here's how Eric describes this life. And so here, on the miniature plane of the carpet, and a prophetically fitting tableau of domestic happiness, the child who would lend the future era her name met the man who would lend it his character. I wrestle, I've been wrestling with something since reading these biographies. What was the difference between Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer? Wilberforce won. Now, if you'd asked him 15 years into what he was trying to do, if you were successful, he said, I was a failure. But you know, after 20 years, 40 years, real progress happened, real progress happened, and the slave trade, real progress happened in British culture. His cause won. Bonhoeffer's did not win. As Eric mentioned earlier, Bonhoeffer fought and fought and fought, and he started at the very beginning of Hitler's just wretched reign in Germany by resisting Hitler on a number of levels, and he ended in this plot to assassinate him. And you know what? What he did actually didn't matter. It took the Allies bombing that place to smithereens in order to get rid of Hitler. And, and bon, you know, in a, in a real way, you could say Wilberforce won and Bonhoeffer lost. But my question is this: Where do you get lives like those? That whether you win or lose, whether you win or lose, whether you win your culture like. Wilberforce did, or you lose your culture and you become an inspiration for the next culture. How do you have lives like that? 
And adding education and adding incentives and adding these things do not a virtuous life make. And Tom Wright has helped us with this. He says virtue is not the addition of values to our life. Get this. Virtue, get this, is a way of being human in the world. And I want my kids and I want this generation that I work with and I want the church to be the type of humans that win or lose in our culture. Whether God and his sovereignty is going to revive Western Civ and American culture or whether God and his sovereignty says this is the twilight of it. Either way, how do we become the type of people who are virtuous people in the world? And it's interesting, Frederick Nietzsche sheds light on this for us. He said life is, get this, a long obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson picked up on this and kind of sanctified it. You have to sanctify things from Nietzsche. (laughs) But it's a long obedience in the same direction. Charles Dickens talked about this at the beginning of Great Expectations. He says this, Pause, you who read this, and think for a moment of the long chain of iron of gold, of thorns or flowers that would never have bound you but for the formation of the first link on one memorable day. Do you remember the scene from A Christmas Carol when Jacob Marley, the ghost, comes and visits Ebenezer Scrooge and he's covered in what? Chains And Scrooge says, where did the chains come from? And he says, I forged them. I forged them. Decision after decision after decision. You see, here's what the great thinkers of ethics have taught us. We can know what ethics is, but virtue is a muscle. Virtue is not something that we put up here. Virtue is something that has to be trained, as David pointed out earlier from C.S. Lewis, from the chest. And you know what? If there's a long obedience in the same direction, that long obedience can either be in a good direction or in a bad direction. We can either train towards virtue or we can train away from virtue. We have seen a scene like this in real life, in real time in the last couple months. You may have heard of a man named Kermit Gosnell. Does that ring a bell? Kermit Gosnell was an abortionist, uh, a doctor uh, in Philadelphia. His His abortion clinic has just been raided and has been shut down. He is under uh, indictment for eight counts of murder because of what the investigators have called he ran a house of horrors. Does this ring a bell now? This guy can be described as nothing else than a butcher. He he had people that weren't doctors call themselves doctors and treat patients. Women died because of botched surgeries. The place was filthy. There were cats running around. There were fetal remains kept in freezers. I mean, this place was like out of a third world country. And and it's interesting that when he went to his arraignment and Jody Bottom in, in, in the Weekly Standard talks about the scene here, he goes to his arraignment and he gets convicted of eight counts of murder. And, 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 and it's interesting because his, his response to the judge is one of surprise. He says, I understand the one count of murder. In other words, because I know that someone died under my care, a woman died under my care, but what about the other seven? You know what the other seven were? The other seven were botched abortions where the fetuses, the infants, were born alive and he took scissors to the back of their head and clipped their spinal cord. He made a joke about one, and it's actually in the records, that this one is so big he could walk me to the bus stop. But when he stood in front of the judge and the judge says, and the judge says, you're, you're, you know, you're guilty, you're, you're going to be tried on eight counts of murder. Gosnell, according to Jody Bottom, is, is surprised. He says, I understand the one. I don't understand the other seven. What was wrong with that? Here's how Bottom describes it. Who would wonder 
why Kermit Gosnell was confused at this arraignment. No one had stopped him before. No one in more than 30 years had questioned him. No one had ever given him a signal that he might be prosecuted for performing abortions by inducing over-medicated third trimester labor and then chopping through the spinal cord of the living result. No one had ever dared called his abortion business murder. No one, in fact, had ever told him that he wasn't the absolute ruler of his own little third world country. See, this is what a long obedience will go in one direction. What we want to know is, what will a long obedience go in the other direction? Aristotle, all the way back in his work on ethics, says, it is no matter of little importance what sort of habits we form from the earliest age. It makes a vast difference, or rather, all the difference in the world. If we're going to know the truth and then do it, it's a, it's, it, it's a world of habits. It's what are the habits we are developing. There's different ways to talk about this, and there's different ways to say this. David talked about this idea of loves, and I connect loves with habits. Now, please get this. I work in worldview, and I work in worldview with students. And one of the things we really drill into students is that the conflict of worldviews is the conflict over the definition of words. And there's all kinds of words in our culture that have lost meaning. Does that make sense? I mean, they used to mean something, now they mean something else, and we could think all kinds of things. One of those is love. You know, sometimes when you get done speaking, people come up and talk to you, and I usually really enjoy that. Sometimes I get done speaking, and I see the look on people's face as they're coming up and talking to me, and I say, ooh, I don't want to talk to that person. (laughs) I was speaking to a group of students in uh, South Carolina, and I made a sarcastic comment. I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And I, I, I made a sarcastic comment about a movie called The Notebook. This was about seven or eight years ago. Forgot I had said it, went on, I was talking to some people, and I see two female students and a female teacher making a beeline to me. And I see the look on their face and think, I don't want to talk to that person. So I tried to get away. I tried to go this way. Uh, and, and I got caught up in this group of students. And there's this phrase, if you ever played football, that, that it's, it's hearing the footsteps. And it means like from your blind side, you're about to get drilled. Well, I heard the footsteps. And it was weird because usually it's, you know, a heavyweight man. In this case, it was three females. So I turned around, and this woman glares at me, and she says, what's wrong with the notebook? I said, what do you mean? She said, that was a beautiful picture of love. Now, how many of you know the movie The Notebook? Okay, if you're a guy, I demand an explanation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the movie goes something like this. There's an older woman who has Alzheimer's. She can't remember her life. She's in a home being cared for. And this husband goes every day and reads out of a notebook their love story. And she remembers him and falls in love with him at the end of the story. And she said, that's a beautiful picture of love. He stuck beside her till the very end. And I said, of course, that's a beautiful picture Uh, 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 of love but you forgot what was in the notebook you forgot what the story was that brought them to this point and the story goes like this it's very similar to most teen love stories one summer there are these two teenagers who essentially are in heat and and they see each other and they're just they're just overwhelmed with this strong feeling of emotion for each other you know what i mean this is strong passion of feeling just feelings you know for for each other and 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 so they they hang out all summer and then she sleeps with him because that's what they do in movies like this but the dad is saying stay away from this guy because he's a bum and he kind of was a bum but you know that's just what mean dads do they just want to make their daughters miserable so 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 she ignored that and she's you know hung out with the guy and slept with them and at the end of the summer the dad breaks them up moves them to different places and they both end up going off to war he goes off to fight the war she goes off to become a nurse she treats this other guy he falls in love with her she says she loves him uh they he proposes she accepts the engagement commits to him commits to uh, her, her parents commits to her parents that they're going to get married but even though all this is going on those strong feelings have never gone away over here they just never never gone away for this other guy so even though she's made these commitments 
She breaks her commitment to her family, to his family, to this man. She runs and jumps back into bed with this guy because those feelings are just so strong. And that's what she does. And she breaks her commitments and those feelings go on. And then 50 years later, they're still married and they're still in love because, you know, feelings never go away, just like real life. (laughs) How did that movie define love? As a set of feelings that never go away. Here's the other problem, get this, is that movie suggests that we are victims to our feelings. That whatever our feelings say, we must follow them. This is actually one of the great lies of Western civilization, that feelings aren't muscles. Feelings are muscles. You train them to do what you want them to do. And listen, students, I'm so glad to see some students in here, but you've got to understand this, man. You've got to understand this, students, that everyone has to make a decision. Either you will determine truth by your feelings, or you will allow truth to determine your feelings. You are not a victim of your feelings. Feelings are to be cultivated. This is the passions. This is a muscle. This is what Lewis was talking about. And and David already quoted this so well. It still remains true, he says, that no justification of virtue will enable a man to be virtuous without the aid of trained emotions. You see the phrase? Trained emotions. The intellect is powerless against the animal organism. The head rules the belly through the chest. The head is the seat of reason. The belly is the seat of, of, of... of just pure gut reaction and passion. And so we need a chest. It may be even, excuse me, said that it is by this middle element that man is man, for by his intellect he is mere spirit and by his appetite mere animal. This is from that that, that, that essay, uh, Men Without Chest. And by the way, if you want the picture of what, and and, and by the way, this essay was a critique of education of his day. Okay, that's what he was going after. And if you want a picture of what C.S. Lewis thought that education was going to produce, if you, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia recently, and you read all of C.S. Lewis's nonfiction, go back and read Narnia, and you'll see the connections. You know who the man without, or the boy without a chest is in Narnia? It's in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. His name was Eustace Clarence Scrubs, and he almost deserved it. Isn't that a great way to begin a book? That's how he begins The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Because here it is, here you have a boy, here you have a boy that has been trained to analyze. He's been given technical knowledge. He's been given education which dumps knowledge into his head. And then he's been taught that he is the center of reality which has cultivated the gut and he has no chest. And we are proverbially the man without a chest. Dallas Willard uses another phrase, those with a well-ordered heart. The people who are prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life in ways that are good and right. You may say, I want to be open to think of anything, imagine anything, have all feelings, see everything. What do you think freedom is about? Well, then you must take the consequences. You can't choose conditions and reject consequences. You can't choose, if you choose to step off the roof, you can't choose not to hit the ground. The mind has laws just as rigorous as gravity. If God's eyes are too pure to behold evil, it is wise for us to turn away as much as possible. So how do we cultivate virtue? Let me give you just a couple things quickly. First of all, we cultivate virtue. We have to know what virtue is. I would, I would challenge us that those of us that work, especially in the Christian community, that this is not the same thing as teaching kids do's and don'ts. It's teaching them what it means to live a virtuous life. Um, I, I'm going to I try to couch this very carefully, but I think a key uh, illustration of this is the virtue of chastity. I grew up thinking sexuality is bad because of all the bad things that will happen to you if you have sex outside of marriage. 
you'll get a disease. Or worse, you'll get pregnant. I mean, this is really the impression that we got. Lauren Winter in her book, Naked Chastity, flips this on its head. It's so helpful. This is an illustration of what I'm talking about. She says, chastity is not a negative virtue. It's not don't have sex outside of the context of marriage. Chastity is a positive virtue because sex is not bad. Sex is good. The reason that we ought not have sex outside of the confines of marriage is not because sex is bad. It's because sex was designed to be good, but sex was contextualized because it was designed. Does that make sense? Sex was contextualized to be good in a particular context in design. It's like if I gave my wife a $30,000 necklace, and I work for nonprofits, so that's probably not going to happen. But if I could, and the next time I saw her, she's driving down the road, and she's swinging that necklace outside the window, and I'd be like, Sarah, what are you doing? Stop. She's like, oh, I love this necklace. No, there's only two answers to that. Number one is she doesn't get the necklace. Does that make sense? She doesn't understand the virtue of the necklace. When we throw sexuality around in our culture, it's not that we love sex. It's that we don't understand its virtue. We don't understand who we are and how sexuality fits into how God has designed us to be. Or secondly, she hates the necklace and she's trying to get rid of it. And frankly, I work with far too many students and I know, I know that when they throw sexuality around, it's not because they love it, it's because they hate themselves. And they're just looking for anything, which we'll bring up another point here as we move ahead. Peter Kreeft in his book, Back to Virtue, talks about this. This is new. Christians, like other sinners, have always been susceptible to vice. But today we no longer seem to know what vice and virtue are. Help is desperately needed exactly now. For exactly at the time when the fatal knowledge of how to destroy the entire human race has fallen into our hands, the knowledge of morality has fallen out. Exactly when our toys have grown up with us from bows and arrows to thermonuclear bombs, we have become moral infants. This is why this curriculum is so absolutely timely. This is why, once again, Chuck has demonstrated his foresight about culture and said, listen, we have got to get back to moral training. Frankly, I went to seminary and I got training in ethical theories. I did not get training in virtue development. These are different things. All right, quickly, secondly, we must practice repentance. This doesn't mean we're perfect. If you're a perfect person, you're not a Christian. Our biblical worldview tells us that we are fallen. And this is why the practice of repentance has to make its way back into the life of the church and back into virtue development. There's this great scene in Les Mis, and if you've ever seen the movie, the, the movie did, did, a, did a great job with it, but it only took it so far. It's that, it's that scene when Jean Valjean finds redemption because of the work of the priest. You guys know what I'm talking about? Jean Valjean is this criminal, and, and this priest takes him in, and he ends up stealing the candlesticks, and a cop catches him, brings him back to the priest, and is going to turn him in, and the priest says... Jean Valjean, I'm so grumpy with you. Why didn't you take the, you know, the other silver too? In other words, he says here, and, he, and, and there's that scene in the movie where he throws his hood down and says, now I've bought you for good, right? It's interesting that, that that's where it moves in, in the movie. In the book, Jean Valjean, immediately after leaving that, he's so uh, discombobulated, he's so confused because of this act of kindness and generosity and repentance and redemption that he's never seen before that he immediately goes and he steals a coin from a little boy. And then it says this of Jean Valjean. That was it. He never did anything like that again because he had just done a thing of which he was no longer capable. That's what repentance does to us. 
It actually trains the muscle of virtue when we get down on our knees in front of our families, in front of our friends, to encourage reconciliation and admit fault. It actually trains our virtue. It's not just making up for the bad stuff. In God's economy, it actually trains us towards the good stuff. Does, Does that make any sense? Third, we have to create space for accountability. Unfortunately, we don't have space for accountability. Things go completely disastrous, and then we start pointing fingers. And we do this culturally, and we do this locally. And by the way, the the fourth connects with the third, and that is we have to rebuild catechizing social structures. It is the collapse of family, and it is the collapse of church, being the church, that removes accountability. I'm from a town, uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Many of you know it. It's... um, it's famous for a number of things. Number one is we are the evangelical mecca of the world. Uh, if you are real evangelical, you have to make a pilgrimage there at least once in your life. Um, everyone's there. Dobson, uh, Compassion, Focus, you know, you name it, they're all there. One of the churches that's there is a church, too, that is, is famous for some really unfortunate things. Um, and that's New Life Church. And its pastor was Ted Haggard. And we're, we're familiar with Ted Haggard's Fall from Grace. But Haggard talks about his fall from grace and his repentance letter from 2006 um, really demonstrates how important the social structures are. Here it is. He said, I'm a deceiver and a liar. There is part of my life that is so repulsive and dark that I've been warring against it all my adult life. For extended periods of time, I would enjoy victory and rejoice in freedom. Then from time to time, the dirt that I thought was gone would resurface. And I would find myself thinking thoughts and experiencing desires that were contrary to everything I believe and teach. By the way, if you're not familiar with this story, it's, 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 it's a mega church pastor who had an enormous fall from grace. He was also a national leader. He said, through the years because of a moral failure. He said, through the years, I've sought assistance in a variety of ways, which, with none of them proving to be effective in me. If I could paraphrase this, what it means is, is I went and looked for the silver bullet. Then because of pride, I began deceiving those I love the most because I didn't want to hurt or disappoint them. The public person wasn't a lie. It was just incomplete. And here's the thing that the collapse of the home and the collapse of the church makes possible. When I stopped communicating about my problems, the darkness increased and finally dominated me. As a result, I did things that were contrary to everything that I believe. This is what David was talking about. We don't always do what we believe, but we do things that we love. And love isn't just random feelings. Love is, our loves can be trained. It's virtue. It's the chest. We need chest to help the reason overcome the belly. We need that. And it's through the home and it's through the church where these things happen. And so the best way to speak to a culture that lacks virtue is for the church to buck up and be virtuous people and to create social institutions where that sort of moral training and repentance and and, and, and accountability is, is actually present and then we become a prophetic voice to our culture. And we become that prophetic voice whether the church wins as it did in the case of uh, Wilberforce or whether it loses as it did in the church in the case of Bonhoeffer. Because the Christian worldview, of course, ends with one final statement, Christ has risen. Thank you.